Hello and welcome to Foxed, the practical podcast series from Fox & Partners. In these podcasts, we'll be looking at scenarios from our day-to-day -day practice, offering solutions to some of the most pressing partnership and employment law questions we hear from our clients. Our goal is to offer a digest of some of today's key issues in a succinct and practical style that we hope you'll find useful and engaging. Thanks for listening. Welcome to part two of our podcast series on post-termination non-compete clauses. In the last episode, we discussed why employers choose to include non-compete provisions in contracts, the important components for getting the drafting right, and warning signs for suspected breach of a non-compete restriction. We discussed that our experience is that these types of provisions can tend to elicit fairly emotive reactions, given their ability to constrain individual freedom to choose a place of work, particularly where the individual's specialism is in a particular area and the provisions appear to stop them working doing that job. They can be seen by some as overly aggressive, but on balance, our experience is still that most of those in industry still see them as an important part of business protection in the UK. On this episode, we will be looking at practical and legal options for employers if a breach or potential breach of non-compete provisions is discovered and the pros and cons of those steps. So picking up where we left off last time. Kat, what can you do all about this from a practical perspective? Well, look, as I say, I think the first step is to investigate whether there has actually been a breach or whether the employee is likely to act in breach. Once you actually have information that points towards a breach, I'd recommend that you start to collect your evidence and ensure that the evidence, whether that be in documents or emails or from electronic devices, is preserved. The last thing an employer wants to do is to have a good case and strong evidence and then find that the information is either inadvertently deleted or that the employee gets wind of the fact that they may be onto them and deletes it themselves. If the employee does start to delete things, there's obviously various tools at your disposal that you can use to try to recover that information using forensic IT experts or, or even um, a rather draconian measure, which is a search order from the court to help you to preserve evidence. However, as a starting point, you might want to take some basic and less expensive steps, such as making sure that any document deletion policy is stopped, devices are imaged and emails are backed up. At the same time as collating that evidence, you might want to think about formulating strategy. Are you going to call the employee into a meeting or are you going to go straight ahead and instruct lawyers to immediately write to the employee? Maybe both. Employee competition, in our experience, can be a high stakes area. And of course, we would recommend taking professional advice before doing anything at all. Time is often of the essence, so it is sensible to speak to advisors as soon as possible after discovering a breach or a potential breach. If you're confident that you have sufficient evidence that an employee is or might intend to act in breach of a non-compete covenant, then I suppose sending a letter before action to the employee, either straight from the employer or from its solicitors, is usually the first step. What would you typically find in a letter before action? Well, the content of a letter before action is obviously fact specific and a cookie cutter approach shouldn't necessarily be adopted. I think a good structure for a letter would be to clearly set out the background to the matter, including detail about why you're writing to the employee, what you have discovered, and identifying what you are claiming the employee has actually done, what has been breached. Then I would set out what, if any, assurances you as the employer are asking for from the employee. Yes, I agree. Sometimes an employer's gut reaction is to write to an employee making allegations and alluding to the threat of an injunction. However, in most cases, that approach is unlikely to yield the best results. As an employer, I would ask myself, 
what would the business benefit from at this stage? You could consider asking for contractual undertakings from the employee. In other words, you ask an employee to give you contractual assurances that they will or, or they won't do something. For example, this could be you asking the employee to agree that they will comply with the non-compete covenant and not join the competitor until the expiry of that non-compete. The advantage of this approach is that if the employee later acts in breach of the undertakings, there is good documentary evidence for the court that the employee has agreed to that the covenants are binding, they've gone back on their word, they can't be trusted, and that as a result of this, an interim injunction is the most appropriate remedy. Departing employees might also be at risk of costs if they unreasonably refuse to provide undertakings in certain situations. Alternatively, whilst your inquiries are at a preliminary stage or when you think that undertakings are unlikely to be complied with, you might not want to, as a, a first step, ask for undertakings. Instead, you might want to ask for a sum of money to be paid to you to compensate you for any loss that your business has suffered as a result of the employee's activities. Or you might want to claw back, withhold or set off a bonus payment that was going to be paid to the employee. The terms of the employment contract are vital here, so the first step is to make sure that an employer has the power to do what it's intending to do. Employers should be mindful to not do anything which could give an employee the opportunity to constructively dismiss themselves, because if an employee argues that there's been a repudiation of the contract by an employer, which is then accepted by the employee, it has the effect that the employee is no longer bound by the restrictive covenants in the contract. This principle is derived from the House of Lords decision of General Bill Posting versus Atkinson, which goes all the way back to 1909. Yes, and I think it's also worth mentioning that if information gathering is more important, you could also ask that the employee deliver up their devices for forensic imaging or provide a copy of certain messages or emails. If you're still building your case, it might be prudent to seek disclosure of the relevant information, which might then set you up nicely if you commence proceedings or apply for injunctive relief. The remedy you ask for in the letter before action should be carefully considered. I'd also recommend that you give the employee a time limit for compliance, which should be a reasonable amount of time in the circumstances. An employer should, if they can, also include the evidence they have to support their position. They would usually include a copy of the contract of employment or at very least um, a copy of the relevant restrictive covenants. It might also be appropriate, depending on the subject matter, to include a copy of any emails or documents that point towards the employee acting in breach. It's also not unusual for the existing employer to also write to the new employer, putting them on notice of the restrictive covenants and the potential breach by the employee. Because knowledge is a crucial component of an inducement of breach of contract claim, sending the prospective employer a copy of the restrictive covenants is important because you plant the new employer with knowledge of the restrictive covenants if they haven't already seen them. And it can just help to bolster any potential claim that you might have. Cap, what if you're not satisfied with the employee's response? What are your thoughts? Well, if you're not satisfied with the response from an employee... You could, of course, apply to the court for urgent interim injunctive relief. As you and I'm sure some of our listeners will know, an interim injunction is a temporary remedy that holds the ring until the matter can be considered fully at an expedited hearing, often known by us lawyers as a speedy trial. This is obviously a big decision for a business and many factors, including cost, time, reputational impact, will have to be weighed in the balance before proceeding. Another tool in your armory as an employer includes applying for pre-action disclosure from the employee if they're not disclosing documents, which help to dispose fairly of the anticipated proceedings. 
assist the dispute to be resolved without proceedings or save costs. This can actually be quite an effective weapon, particularly where an employer needs to determine whether it has a cause of action. So, Shiv, what are your thoughts on what a business needs to consider if it doesn't get the comfort it needs through correspondence? I've talked about potential injunctive relief proceedings, but um, what should be in a business's mind? My view is that a business needs to consider how damaging this particular individual is going to be to the business if they go and work for a competitor or start their own business in breach of the non-compete, and whether it's worth the time and expense of pursuing that individual. It's ultimately a cost-benefit exercise. I think the employer needs to consider the seniority of the individual and the legitimate business interest the business is trying to protect. And this includes thinking about the access to client connections and staff the employee had or the confidential information they had access to. If the reality is that the individual is unlikely to do any damage to your business by going to work for a competitor, you might consider reminding the employee that the covenants are binding, but that as a one-off, you're prepared to waive the covenants. A business might consider that it's not worth the time and expense enforcing a covenant if the reality is that there won't be much damage. In this situation, I would also suggest ensuring that the employee agrees to keep the waiver confidential so they don't go and tell their colleagues. However, if the damage is likely to be significant to your business, you might consider that the benefit of taking action, such as obtaining an injunction, outweighs the cost and the time of going to court. If an employer is considering applying for injunctive relief, it should remember that time is of the essence and the employer will need to move reasonably quickly. Applying for injunctive relief is also likely to consume management resources and legal fees are likely to mount up quickly when preparing for an interim relief application hearing. However, it can often be a price worth paying to protect your business. An employer should also bear in mind that if the court ultimately decides that an interim injunction shouldn't have been granted, the employer will have to compensate the employee for their losses under what's known as a cross-undertaking in damages. Even if the employee is unlikely to do much damage to your business, you might want to take action against the employee to send a message to existing employees or competitors that you will take breaches of your covenants seriously and that you are prepared to go to court if necessary. There is, of course, the risk that if you do go to court and the covenant is found to be unenforceable, that may then open the floodgates to copycat employees who may then want to leave. Ultimately, it's all about weighing up the pros and cons to your business. Shiv, one of the alternatives looked at by the government in its consultation is whether employers should offer payment during a non-compete period, similar to some European countries. Do you think payment for covenants would make a difference to compliance and also enforcement? That's an interesting question. Uh, If I may, I'll answer that in two parts. Firstly, I don't think we can generalise about what people will do if they were going to be paid for the non-compete period. I suspect that with some employees, even if they are being paid, they might still consider acting in breach, whereas for others, there might be less of an incentive to act in breach if they're receiving an income for the period they are prevented from work for a competitor. I suspect that with some employees, even if they are paid, they might still consider acting in breach, whereas for others there may be less of an incentive to act in breach if they're going to receive an income for the period they're going to be prevented from working for a competitor or from starting their own competing business. In relation to enforceability, I can't think of a case which has come before the court which directly addresses the issue of enforcement when a former employee is paid or or not paid during a non-compete restricted period. However, it is worth noting that the decision of the Court of Appeal in Plan on Limited versus Gilligan, which was handed down earlier this year with a rather surprising judgment which for our purposes is worth considering. The point worth noting here is that the case touched upon the issue of financial hardship to an employee if an injunction is granted. 
Employers often argue that an injunction is a suitable remedy because the employer is able to give a, a cross undertaking in damages to compensate the employee for the loss of their remuneration. If, at the end of the final hearing, it is determined that the restriction is not enforceable and the injunction should not have been granted. The employer in this case argued exactly that and that damages under the cross undertaking damages would be an adequate remedy for an employee if it was found at final hearing that the interim injunction should not have been granted. However, the Court of Appeal did not agree and said that it is unrealistic to argue that since the employer has the resources to honour a cross undertaking in damages, damages would be an adequate remedy for the employee if an injunction against competition was granted at interim stage but was proved at trial to have been unenforceable in restraint of trade. The court said that, except in the cases of very wealthy individuals or where the employer is offering paid garden leave, as they call it, for the whole period of the restraint, the argument has no traction. The Court of Appeal said that in Mr Gilligan's case, granting an injunction would deprive Mr Gilligan of his income until and unless he could find another job. The Court of Appeal dismissed the employer's appeal and did not grant the injunction. I think this case does leave open the door for an employer in future to argue that if it is paying the employee, there is less or, or no hardship and damages would be an adequate remedy under the cross undertaking, so an interim injunction should be granted. I think it's very much a watch this space point, but it could change the direction of travel. My own view is that I don't think we should move towards a system which exists in some European countries where payment has to be made for covenants, because I think that would remove freedom of contract. In my opinion, it is open to parties to negotiate a payment by the employer to the employee for the period the employee is restricted by the non-compete following the termination of their employment, and if they want to do that, they can do that at the outset. Employees and employers already have the option of having a garden leave clause in a contract which basically works in the same way as paying an employee compensation following the termination of their employment and allows an employer to withhold work from the employee. Now obviously a key difference here is that on garden leave the employee is still employed and owes duties to their employer. Excellent. Well, we have covered a lot of ground today and that wraps up another episode from Fox & Partners. I hope everyone enjoyed listening to this and we look forward to sharing further insights with you during our next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foxed and we hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe via your usual podcast platform or you can find more details at our website, foxlawyers.com.